All right, tonight we are going to pretend that it's the second hour Sunday morning, all right? That's what we're going to do briefly. We'll go through it quickly. So we all know the horrible attack by Hamas on Israel on October the 7th, what, around 6.30 a.m. in the morning. We know over 1,000 people died. We know now Israel's retaliating against them, and we know the situation continues to escalate versus de-escalate. And, of course, whenever Israel is involved in anything— Christians, no matter their theological perspective, are going to say something about it. They're going to talk about it in some way, shape, or form. They're going to open Bibles. They're going to start talking. They're going to start looking to scriptures. This fulfills this. This could fulfill this. Or you'll have others open their Bibles and say, biblical Israel is not the Israel of today. No promises belong to them. So they don't get the land. They don't get anything. All right. So no matter which theological stream, this is going to be a time because of the seriousness of it, the magnitude of it, that people are going to be talking about Israel. So I've been keeping up listening to sermons and podcasts and what what people are doing and not doing. That's not been very good for my mental health because of the last sermon that I reviewed. Oh, man, I don't even want to talk about how bad that got. So, um, but I've been keeping up. And the one thing I have heard mentioned countless times is Ezekiel 38 and 39. Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, to some credit, some say, no, 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 this is not Ezekiel 38 and 39. Stop looking to that. Others say, it may not be Ezekiel 38 and 39, but it's setting the groundwork for Ezekiel 38 and 39. So it could be on its way. But Ezekiel 38 and 39, Ezekiel 38 and 39. So whenever that starts happening, I know, and when it comes to the, uh, Ezekiel 37 through 39, we talked about there's two major issues when it comes to the church in Ezekiel 37 through 39. Issue number one is for some weird reason, even though it's talked about a bazillion times, there is great ignorance of these three chapters from people sitting in the pew. Even though it's talked about all the time, if you, if you turn down all of that and, and look at the people sitting in the pew going, grab a piece of paper, grab a pencil, let me start asking you some questions about Ezekiel 37 through 39, you find out really quick, they may tell you what they've heard about it, but they know very little of the actual text, which leads to the second problem. The second major problem with Ezekiel 37 through 39 is that most of the teaching and preaching isn't really preaching and teaching of Ezekiel 37 through 39. Ezekiel 37, 39 just kind of lays there like, you know, for everyone to walk, walk over to that and placed upon it their system of eschatology or their theological system. And then they take that theological system or system of eschatology, preach it in a nice sounding sermon, three points, good eye contact, you know, good voice inflection. And everybody's like, wow, that's so good, pastor. I didn't know that this is about Russia invading Israel and God. I didn't know all of that. Yeah, I wonder why you didn't know all of that. Okay, I mean, there's a lot of, like maybe the reason, there's a reason you don't know all of that. So we're trying to fix that. So whenever... Everyone's running to the scripture. I believe, that, and, I, and I know it's not popular, and I know it's not the way people think. I believe what you have to do is turn off all of that noise, and you say, I need to do an observational exercise through the section of scripture. And when we talk about an observational exercise, what are we talking about doing? Just going through the text and trying to observe what's actually there without doing what? interpretation and I know that some people that that's like that's like a calf looking at a new gate they're just like what is that they don't like they don't know what you're talking about right because they're like I'm going to go to church and there's going to be no interpretation we're just going to do observation that that's our goal is to try to walk through it because the more you the more you observe the more you see the more you see the more prepared you are so that no one can do what Try to show you something that's not actually there because you'll be the one going, oh, no, 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 no. You can't say that. I've done an observational exercise. I know what's there and I know what's not there. And sometimes it's amazing what people will try to tell you from the pulpit is there when it's not really there. The only way to fix that is observational work, observational work. But a lot of people don't want to do the observational work. I mean, my, 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 my approach has always been to anyone wanting to argue with me or fight with me is simply say, 
Here's the observational work. Go do the observational work. And then come back. Show me your observational work. I'll show you my observational work. Now, does that mean we're going to come to an agreement? No, but that eliminates what? About 50 possibilities. Like there's about 50 things that can't fit because just clear observation eliminates them as a possibility, right? If I go to Matthew and say, show me a baby being baptized in Matthew. It's not there. Show me a Mark. Show me a Luke. Show me a John. Now, when we get to Acts, they're like, oh, there's five household baptisms. I think they're all in Acts, right? And it, so then now, now we can say, okay, so we can take, we can go from Matthew to Revelation and realize we don't have anything other than these household baptisms. We don't have a specific command. We don't have a specific example. We just have households being baptized. And so the assumption is this is what happened. Therefore, we, and then we borrow that from circumcision. Okay, and then you develop a system. Right? There's a lot of assumptions that go into that. But, what, but if both people can agree, this is what we observe, then you would think that there would have to be like, well, okay, based off observation, you're, you're right about this or right about that. It doesn't always work. So I just think because of the nature of the situation, we've got to be experts on this. So we started in 37. And the reason we started in 37 is because I believe 37 always gets left out of discussions about 38 and 39. You go to 38 and 39, next thing you know, you're talking about Russians and invasion, a battle, and you got all, and everyone forgets 37. Now, what was my, why did I want us to know 37? What well, comes before, and if we can determine that it comes before chronologically, that the event of 37 must come before the events in 38 and 39, then what can we conclude? That some very specific things must occur before the events in 38 and 39. Now, we keep putting the word if, because many believe Ezekiel is not in chronological order, right? We talked about that Sunday morning, all right? So, but if we go through 37, what does that, did anyone write down? I don't know, if Sarah, if you have your notes. Did you write down all the things that we determine must happen before we can get to 38 if it's in chronological order? What were those things? If you wrote them down. If you didn't, that's okay. I'll deduct 50 points. Okay, I know I'm putting you on the spot, yeah. Israel's resurrection, restoration, unification, regeneration, and God dwelling in the midst of them. Okay, so we referenced resurrect, uh, resurrection, restoration, regeneration, unification, and God dwelling in the midst of them. Those are serious things that must happen, Right? Okay, well, well it, now, now, remember, some would say Ezekiel 37 is not about the nation, it's about the church. Okay, well, there, there are all kinds of problems. But let's just go through this really, really quick. There's only uh, 28 verses, so it won't cause us a, a, a great amount of pain to read it. And I'll just try to make brief, brief comments because we worked through this during uh, Sunday morning, but it was never placed online. So we'll let everyone who wasn't here Sunday morning catch up. You ready? Here we go. Ezekiel 37, verse 1. I'm going to try not to get bogged down here because I want to get to 38. So if I start talking, just say, shh, okay? And I'll just ignore you. But, that, but at least you tried, okay? All right, here we go. Ezekiel 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, carried me out in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones, all right? This is God showing uh, Ezekiel a vision, all right? And caused me to pass by them round about, and behold, there was very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. There's a lot of bones, and they're very dry. How does the NIV translate very dry? Very dry. Okay, so there's, there's agreement. They're very dry, okay? They're like, they, there's no question. These are bones, okay? There's no question, right? And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. And remember, I taught you a very important, if anyone ever asks you a difficult question, 
you know. <laughs> Just say you know. Then, okay, or God knows. There you go. Verse four. Again, he said unto me, prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now we know from a practical human standpoint, this seems absolutely ridiculous. Go preach to some dry bones, right? It just seems like that's the craziest thing you've ever heard in your life, right? Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. Immediately, one of the main things to remember in chapter 37, I cannot stress this, this is all the action is God-centric. God is doing all the action. They're not, the bones can't do anything. The bones can't do anything. Everybody got that? All right. And I will lay sinews upon you and I will bring up flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Please note, I will. And uh, basically, and I will. I, it's, all, all of this is God, God doing all of it. The dry bones can't do anything. The dry bones can't. And I will argue because we, we know we've already identified in the first part one, the bones are Israel. There's no mistaking that it's Israel. The text is utterly specific about it, right? I don't, you can try to make it about the church. You can try to make it about us. Now, it is a picture, I do agree, of how God saves, how God regenerates, but the emphasis here in Ezekiel 37 is about Israel. And please note, anytime Israel is involved in action, it always leads to what? Condemnation. When Israel acts, they end up condemned. So what is always necessary? God's actions. Flip it. Whenever we are involved in actions, it always leads to condemnation. This is what confuses me about people who run around saying that your actions prove that you're saved. Your actions would only prove you're not saved because you would judge those actions according to what? Do I judge my actions according to Stephen's life? To Bobby, I I judge my actions according to God's standard, which I will always end up coming back saying, woe is me, I am undone, I'm a man of unclean lips, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, yeah, thank thank you, Bobby. Yeah, I'm starting to preach and and not not get through this. So, but it's God, it's God-centric. God's actions, God's actions, God's actions. Everybody got that? So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, shaking, and the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I behold, lo, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then said he unto me, prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, thus saith the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live." So I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came unto them and they believed and they lived, I'm sorry, and they lived and stood up on their feet as an exceeding great army. So all the bones, flesh, they're now like an army of people and they all stand. Then he said unto me, son of man, now this is the key verse, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Please circle that, whole house of Israel. As we stated in uh, Sunday school on Sunday, whole house of Israel, that phrase is used about six, seven times. We looked up all the references, and lo and behold, would you, would you, can you believe this? That every time we looked, all the times where it mentioned the whole house of Israel, it was actually referring to, Israel, isn't that amazing? And the whole house of Israel seems to be referring to the northern and southern kingdom being what? Spoken of as one, all right? So these, what are the bones? Whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, thus saith the Lord God, behold, O my people. Once again, note, next two words, I will. Who will? God will, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Back into the land. I cannot stress that enough. And all those things that we talked about, when we talked about Israel has to be restored, you can say restored to the land if you want to add that to your notes. They've got to be resurrected. They have to be restored to the land. They have to be regenerated. 
right? They have to be unified and they have to be God dwelling in the midst of them, right? I cannot stress that enough. They're going to be restored to the land. That Clearly, this has nothing to do with the church. Everybody understand that? Okay, all right. And so he says, uh, and I will shall pour my spirit in you. You shall live and I shall place you in your own land. Then shall you know that I, the Lord, have spoken it. And, and look, note this. I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it. You may want to circle that. Once again, stressing who's doing the work? God. Why does God have to do the work for Israel? They cannot do it. Why does God have to do everything for us? We can't do it. All right? The, the word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Verse 17. And join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in thine hand. And I, I said to do this. The next time you have Christian friends who are arguing with you about this stuff, just call, call them over to your house, get the fire pit going. You can bring them out to the Danzler since they have a fire pit and everything. And you can bring them all around. You can bring some chairs. You can give them some refreshments. And they're arguing you about God's done with Israel. He's finished with Israel. Blah, 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 blah. You can just take, as they are all watching there, you can just grab two sticks and just put the two sticks together and say, thank you for coming. And now everyone go home. And that should end the discussion. Because God is demonstrating that the two will become one. Let me ask this. Has that ever happened? No. Now, what people try to say is when some would argue right there, like if we had more people here, someone may argue, yes, it did. They become one in the church. That's what they would say. That's what they would say. But, but this, this is so far removed from the church. This is referring to land. This is referring to the nation. I mean, it's using Jew. Look at, look at all the references used there, right? What, what, look at all the references. For Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick right upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim. I mean, come on, you... There's no way you make all of that not be those things, right? And join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in thine hand. And when the children of thy people shall speak unto thee, saying, Will thou not show us what thou meanest by these? Say unto them, Take, say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel, his fellows, and will put them with, with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be... One in my hand, and the sticks wherein thou writest shall be in thine hands before their eyes. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of God, Behold, next two words, I will. Are you getting the emphasis of who's doing all the work? I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whether they be gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. That's not the church. They have to be brought back into their land. And note, he refers to it as their own land. Why is it their own land? Because God gave it to them. God promised it to them. And I will make them one nation, right? In the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all, and they shall be no more two. That can't be the church. Where was the church ever two nations? This is referencing Israel, right? And neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms anymore at all. When it says they're not going to be divided into two kingdoms, you know it's referring to Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, right? I mean, come on. Neither shall, and now, now we know something really big is happening in verse 23, right? Something significant is happening in verse 23. Neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned and will cleanse them so they shall be my people and I will be their God. That is their regeneration. That's the salvation of Israel. 
which has never occurred. Everybody got that? All right. Um, And now again, verse 24, lots of controversy over 24. And David, my servant, shall be king over them and they shall uh, and they all shall have one shepherd they shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them please note that david ruling over them i do agree now this is where things become problematic right because people say you you're arguing for a literal interpretation but when you get to david it's no longer literal i do agree and i do understand i wish it didn't say that but it does say david however i think the people hearing it would not have thought, oh, he's talking about literal David. I think they would have understood it to mean a descendant of David. I believe that's a reference to Christ. I know J. Vernon McGee argues that, that David will be resurrected. I don't, know, I don't necessarily agree with that, but okay. All right? But you get the idea? All right? And, and immediately when you add David into the mix, clearly we know we're not referring to the church. It's, it, this is all Israel-centric over and over and over and over. It's God-centric and who's doing the action, but he's doing the action upon Israel. That, that's the focus, all right? Um, and they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob, my servant. Please note, land is mentioned again. I don't even know how many times that makes land being referenced, but it's over and over and over again, right? Um, Wherein your fathers have dwelt, they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. My servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God. They shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. God's going to dwell literally in the midst of them. Now, this is one, chapter 37. I love it because, I mean, we don't really have to work hard on the observation, do we? Do we really need to look anything up? We looked up house of Israel just to show that it means, but I mean, everything's pretty straightforward, right? God is going to do a whole bunch of things for Israel. And God's the one doing it. Israel's doing, they're, they're passive in it. God is the action. They're, they're, they're dry bones, which I do understand when we talk about our salvation, we can say our salvation is likened unto this. Just please note, Ezekiel 37 is not about us. Its purpose is not to show us our salvation. This purpose is to show us what is coming for Israel. No matter what happens in this war, no matter what happens in the next war, this is coming. And if it's not coming, then I don't understand. Does that make sense? Now, please note, if Ezekiel 37 precedes 38 and its chronological order, then all of that must happen before you get to 38. So if you ever hear someone immediately going to 38 and start talking about this and this and this, you need to stop them and ask them just a simple question. Does 37 come before 38? And if it does, get back to me when all of that has happened. Because there's no point worrying about Ezekiel 38. That's a lot of stuff that has to happen. In fact, what does that sound like? 37 sounds like Revelation? Which part? All right, yeah. I, that's the only place I know to put it, right? If that, so listen, that, that, I want you to try to wrap your mind around that. If this is true, then whatever happens in 38 and 39 has to happen after the thousand years. I don't think it would make sense to happen during the thousand years. Well, we'll have to figure out what's going to happen. But just keep in mind that whatever, if it's in order, 37, the only way to fulfill 37 is the millennial kingdom. I don't know how else you fulfill 37. Don't you agree? All right, so then what's 38 and 39 about? Okay, well, let's figure it out, right? How many people have Bibles that have a heading or somehow give some kind of title to chapter 38? Okay, a prophecy against God, okay? Anybody else have anything there? Prophecy about God and future Okay, oh, now look what his Bible just did. 
It's a prophecy about Gog and a future invasion of Israel. Now, if we say 38 comes after 37 in chronological order, then it would have to be future. But is it in chronological order? See, now, you see how that could lead to a presupposition to make it future. But we're going to throw out that presupposition. We're not going to bring any system upon it, okay? Everybody ready? Here we go. 38. Oh, boy. This is going to be... Woo! This is not going to be any fun. Okay. All right. Everybody ready? I want to just... What I want to do is read the 23 verses and then just say, ask you, hey, what is this about? But I'm not going to do that for time's sake. But I really, I just want to read 20. Because if you hear 38 read, if you've read 38, when you, by the time you're done at the end, I, you, if you're even remotely honest with yourself, you have to be like, okay, good. Thank you. At least Bobby's willing to admit it. What is, what is this talking about? What is this talking about? And I think that serves the preacher's it's beneficial for the preacher because anyone reading this, you're kind of left with what's going on. And if a preacher comes up and going, I can tell you what's going on. In the future, Russia with the following countries are going to come upon Israel. And everybody's like, oh, really? Yeah. And I got that from Ezekiel 38. And you're like, wow, you're really smart. Okay. You, you got it from a book about Ezekiel 38. That's, that's going to be my argument. But are you ready? Here we go. Chapter 38, verse 1. We're just going to go through it slowly. Remember, observation, observation, observation. Grab Bible dictionaries. We're going to be Bible dictionary crazy tonight. Right? The next 30 minutes is going to be Bible dictionary until you're sick of them. Okay? You're going to be like, I'm tired of it. We're gonna, all the money we spent on Bible dictionaries for all the pews, we're about to make, we're about to finally make sure that we spent our money well. Everybody ready? Here we go. 38.1. And the word of the Lord came unto me. We're, we're all good with this. Who's the me? Ezekiel. All right. Say, son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog. Stop right here. We can't even begin to even proceed. Right? Until we have some clue what's going on here. Oh, who, who is what? The land is what? Magog. So Gog seems to be a person. Would you agree? Maybe? Uh, let's see. Everyone look up Gog in a Bible dictionary. Okay, hang on. I'm going to do, I got two different dic- dictionaries here tonight. Because I want to give ourselves lots of opportunities to get really confused, Right? The only thing, all you need to do to get confused in Christianity is just look at more commentaries and more dictionaries, all right? Here we go. All right. Page what? 514. I'm going to go to the dictionary that you're all holding. For those listening online, we're going to be using two dictionaries tonight. We're going to be using Nelson's New Illustrated Bible Dictionary, and we're going to be using Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, all right? We're going to be using two. All right, here we go. Gog. All right. First thing we have here is the name of two men in the Bible. Number one, a descendant of Joel of the tribe of Reuben. Everybody got that? Do you think that that's what this referencing? I don't think this is what this is referencing. All right. All right, here we go. Now, what, what do we, when we look at a Bible dictionary, what do we want to uh, look out for? When does the dictionary simply give us facts, details, and observation? And when does it cross over to interpretation? Let's see how fast it slides over. All right, everybody ready? Gog, number two. The leader of a confederacy of armies that attacked the land of Israel. Please note, what tense do they use? Past tense, that attacked Israel, that attacked the land of Israel. Everybody see that? Your Bible placed it future. So already immediately, good Bible students should be like, huh, past or future, right? Described as the prince of Rosh, R-O-S-H. Now we're going to have a translation issue, Okay. And the King James, do you see anything about the Prince of Rosh? 
You have Gog. Meshach and Tubal. All right. Does the NIV use Rosh? No. All right. I'm going to do something really quick. Well, I'm going to leave it here for now. I'm just going to read. Right. We'll, we'll look up some uh, other translations here in a minute. All right. But let's read this. Right. The leader of a confederacy of armies that attacked the land of Israel, described as the prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal, Gog is also depicted as being of the land of Magog. Chapter 38, 2 through 3. A place out of the far north of Israel. Uh, Ezekiel prophetically describes Gog and his allies striking Israel with a fierce and sudden invasion. According to Ezekiel's prophecy, Gog will be crushed on the mountains of Israel in a slaughter so great it will take seven months to bury the dead. In the book of Revelation, Gog and Magog reappear as symbols of the nations of the world that will march against God's people in the end times, Revelation 27 through 8. All right. The Bible dictionary is doing something interesting. All right. So everyone stay with me. According to the Bible dictionary, Gog is what? A leader of a confederacy of nations. That, according to this Bible dictionary, attacked Israel. Past tense. Already done. Magog is land north of Israel. According to this Bible dictionary, Gog and Magog show up in Revelation as a... It's right there in the dictionary. As a like the last sentence there as a symbol as a symbol they're making an argument when we talk about Gog and Magog anywhere else it's simply a symbol of nations does everybody see that in the Bible dictionary everybody see that okay they're now immediately what does that tell you that the dictionary is doing what there's a lot of interpretation going on right because what first, if they say, if they use past tense, what could they have put in parentheses after that? They're going to put the date. Wouldn't that have been helpful? Right? Or do they put a date? All right, that immediately calls, that tells me as a good student to do what? Proceed with caution. Right? Because, I mean, it, it, look, if there was a date, they would be in parentheses, Right? Hey, this is when this confederacy of nations attacked Israel on this date. If there's no date, that makes me at least what? Hesitant. Then when they get to Revelation, they're like, oh, Gog and Magog, that's just a symbol of nations. Well, if it's a symbol, okay, maybe, right? But that, that, that leaves us with a lot of what? Does that give us a lot of help? Not, not a lot of help, right? I'm going to go to a different dictionary. Now I'm going to go to the Hallman. Illustrated Bible Dictionary. You ready? Gog and Magog. In Ezekiel 38 through 39, Gog of the land of Magog is the leader of the forces of evil in an apocalyptic conflict against Yahweh. So they just say an apocalyptic conflict against Yahweh. This is an apocalyptic conflict. All right. Meaning they may seem to be implying this is something much bigger than has ever happened before. They may be seeming to be pointing more toward a future. Let's see. Let's see where we go here. Next, are you ready? In Revelation 28, chapter 20, verse 8, Gog and Magog appear together in parallel construction as forces fighting for Satan after his 1,000-year bondage. Please, now, please note. So they almost speak of Gog and Magog now as being more literal. Everyone go to Revelation 20, verse 8, and tell me what you find there. Revelation chapter 20, verse 8. We're not going to get very far tonight, but that's okay. Chapter 20, verse 8. Tell me what you see there. You just tell me. Don't interpret anything. Just make an observation. Uh, 
All right. So do we have Gog and Magog? Okay. Well, I, well I'm not going to see. Now that's an interpretation. That's an interpretation, right? Okay. Hey, that's an interpretation, right? Uh, they does revelation. Are, are they using them symbolically? I don't know, but it definitely points to Gog and. Okay. I, I think they, 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 they kind of point to it. This is what they say. All right, you ready? In Revelation 28, Gog and Magog appear together in parallel construction as forces fighting for Satan after 1,000-year bondage. The identity, I want everyone to hear this, the identity of Gog and Magog has been the subject of an extraordinary amount of speculation. Been a, it's been a subject of extraordinary speculation. What's another way of saying that? It's been a subject of where people have made wild guesses. Time and time again. Well, no, they're, they're, well, well, we're gonna we'll figure that out in a minute. Okay, but I'm gonna, there's a lot more here to read. This one has a big entry, all right? But just listen to me carefully. Someone goes off to Bible college. They go off to seminary. They learn in their study of Ezekiel that this is about Russia invading Israel and a future war. The student loves it, thinks it's great, takes great notes. Can't wait to the day that he's not sitting in seminary. He gets to walk behind the pulpit to share this revolutionary information with the people. The people, maybe they've heard it, maybe they haven't heard it. It sounds good, right? Because he, he says it such authoritatively. So dogmatically, he has a good three-point outline. And everybody's like, oh, wow, that's so good. And everyone leaves. But if you just read that, everybody go back to Ezekiel 38 before we go back to the Bible. All right, everybody ready? Okay, I'm going to read verse 1. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog and the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Now, we know, we clearly know that there's a person involved, right? We have a him, right? Uh, and we also Magog is land because that gives us that information. Does it, tell, does it identify anything about who, what, where? Does it identify anything? No, not really. Verse 3, and say, thus say the Lord God, behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And I will turn thee back and put hooks in thy jaws. I will bring thee forth and all thine horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Now you don't have a clue. Do you have any clue what's going on? Where, where? Do you have any clue? You don't have a clue what's going on. That gives preachers the time to come swoop in and, t- and sell you whatever they want to sell you. But immediately when we grab a dictionary, what are we told? The identity of great speculation. Let's continue to read here. The identity of Gog and Magog. Now please note, they say the identity of both Gog and Magog is of great uh, speculation. Many believe we don't know who Gog is, but almost everyone seems convinced that Magog is north of Israel and that they know where it is. And if you go there to Israel, someone will take you a tour out there and say, this is where Armageddon is going to take place, right? Because some people think they know exactly where it is. This making that both are of great speculation. Right? In general, however, attempts to relate these figures to modern individuals or states have been unconvincing. They argue all the attempts to say, that's this, that's there, that's this. They say it's been unconvincing. Now, the minute I tell people that's unconvincing, they'll be like, absolutely not, it's not unconvincing because I read a good prophecy book. Okay, well, what are you basing your conclusion on, right? They they go on to say, Ezekiel's Prophecy is apparently built on Jeremiah's sermons against a foe from the north. Okay, let me read this again. All right, this is important. Ezekiel's prophecy, 38 and 39, is apparently built 
on Jeremiah's sermons against a foe from the north in Jeremiah 4 through 6. Now everyone throw the brakes on. Go to Jeremiah 4 through 6 really quick. Now, first, I don't know how he's making that assumption. There's an assumption. But if you look at Jeremiah 4 through 6, tell me if you see something that says someone's coming from the north. Yeah, yeah, 4 through 6. I mean, we covered all of this in great detail, but you can just skim through it really quick. Tell me if you see that it's mentioning someone coming from the north. Skim if you find a good verse... I will bring evil from the north. That's Jeremiah 4, verse 6. I will bring... Now, when we read that, who did we assume that was? When we studied this, who did we make the assumption that was? Did we think it was Assyria? Who's Jeremiah primarily focused on? Judah. Judah. So didn't we not make the assumption that it was Babylon? I think we probably did make that assumption, did we not? All right, now wait a minute. If that's Babylon, and he's saying that is Ezekiel 38 and 39 is built upon this, then is he making a reference to Babylon? Well, that would be odd, right? That, 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 that wouldn't be so exciting, would it? And you're like, that's Babylon. Boo-boo. I need, I need my prophecy movies, right? Come on. I'm not saying he's right. They're right. I'm just saying that's an interesting possibility. Let's go on and read what they say. It says Ezekiel's historical reference may have been, and I'm just going to spell the name. You ready? G-Y-G-E-S. Gygus, maybe? King of Lydia. Right? So it says the historical reference may have been Gygus, G-Y-G-E-S, King of Lydia, who asked the king of Assyria for help in 676 B.C. But then joined in an Egyptian-led rebellion against Assyria about 665 B.C. His name became a symbol for the powerful, powerful, fearful king of the north. Magog is apparently a Hebrew construction meaning place of Gog. Gog is a descendant of the tribe of Reuben. All right, so let's go through that again. He tries to attach this to some historical things, right? They're trying to attach it to historical. They're not immediately going prophetical. Now, remember, what's our hermeneutical uh, principle that I always say that we use here when it comes to biblical prophecy? What is the, the, the number one hermeneutical principle every Christian should know? Has it, if, we can find, if you can find a historical fulfillment, then don't look for a future. And that makes people very angry, Right? When I go to Matthew 24, and everybody's like, oh, wars, and rumors of war, earthquakes, oh, oh, look, we're in the end times. And I'm like, that's all pointing to 70 AD. Because it would have no reference even. It wouldn't even make any sense anymore, right? I mean, how many earthquakes and wars have there been, right? It would be ridiculous, right? It would have meant something between 33 AD and 70 AD, right? So, um, but when I do that, people don't like it. And then they accuse me of being a preterist. I get accused of, yeah, it's amazing of all the things I'm accused of being, right? I'm accused of being a preterist. I'm accused of being an antinomian. I'm accused, I'm, uh, I mean, because nobody ever wants to, uh, you've got to follow a team. When I come to Ezekiel, do I have a team? I don't have a team. I don't care. I don't care if I make the dispensationalist mad. I don't care if I make the amillennialist mad. I don't care. I, I, I want to know, is there a possible reference? They're offering actual dates and names. That, that's a good thing, right? That's I, 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 so, let's, and the, and, so here we go. Ezekiel's historical reference may have been Gygus, or Gygus, G-Y-G-E-S, king of Lydia, who asked, and do you want me to spell the name of the king of Assyria? 
Okay, you don't want me to, to do it? Okay, because it's long, okay, right? And I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, okay? All right, king of Syria for help in 676 B.C. But he then joined an Egyptian-led rebellion against Assyria about 665 B.C. His name became a symbol for the powerful, uh, feared king of the north. Magog is apparently a Hebrew construction, meaning place of Gog. Now, but again, all of that is what? It's just speculation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, mean, we can read about all of these kings. We can read about all of this. And we can go, well, maybe that's what he's talking about. We don't know. Put it this way. If there was something, this is what you look for. Listen, this is very important. If there was something specific in the text, that was connected to something specific in history, they would have given us a reference. They don't give us a reference. They take us to Jeremiah 4 through 6, but if I read Jeremiah 4 through 6, we thought that was Babylon. So then we would have to go, well, if that's Babylon, but then when he starts naming historical figures, does he name Babylon? No. We've got King Lydia, uh, we got Assyria, and we got Egypt. So that, does, that doesn't, I don't even know, like, so then that would make us have to go back and reinterpret Jeremiah 4 through 6. All right, let's go back. Yeah, do Wait, now if it's in chronological order, well then, well then we don't really need to identify it because we know, hey, we, if, it's, if it's just, now this is very important. All right, so I'm glad Bobby just brought that up. If this is future, then we don't need to figure out who it is, right? We don't need to figure it out. We can speculate. People can all day say, Russia, 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 Russia. Russia may not even be in existence when this happens. Nations come, nations go. So why speculate? Right? So, and if it's the past, by all means, we need to figure it. But if all you can do is look to the past and speculate, 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 well, then you would have to interpret Revelation as then being symbolic, which then, then that becomes all, you see, then your hermeneutic begins to fall all apart. Let's see what we can find out here and at least try to draw some observation about what happens, all right? So, we know Gog seems to be a person. Can we agree with to that? Magog seems to be land. Right. Now, uh, look up in your Bible dictionary an entry for Magog and see if it, uh, we didn't do that. We didn't. 790. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'll go. We see. I'll go to that dictionary. Page 790. See, this takes all the fun out. People be like, oh, man, I don't want to pay. I don't want to pay $500 for a prophecy conference and hear this nonsense. Okay. All right. Magog is the name of a man and a people. Isn't that interesting? Okay, uh, the second, so number one, the second son, uh, Japheth, and a grandson of Noah. I already got that. The descendants of Magog, possibly a people who lived in northern Asia and Europe. The Jewish historian Josephus identified these people as the Scythians known for their destructive warfare. Uh, Magog may be a comprehensive term meaning north barbarians, they're northern barbarians, there's, there's the north concept coming in. The people of Magog are described as skilled horsemen, Ezekiel 38.15, and experts in the use of the bow and arrow, Ezekiel 39. Now here's the only issue, all right? So is Magog land or is it people? This bit, dictionary went, this went straight with people, did it not? Okay, it's a combination of people. But if if we just look at the text in Ezekiel 38, Magog seems to be identified as what? In Ezekiel 38, what does Magog seems to be identified as? Okay, right. So, like if we can leave it land, you you see how simple that would make it? It would be a lot easier if we could just do land, right? Could we just say, okay, Gog is the person? But, but you can, I think it's fair to say if it's a land, there's going to be a people who live there, right? Does that make sense? So it could, it could encompass both, 
All right. Um, hang on. What else do we have here? I know I cut that way short here. Um, the book of Revelation uses Ezekiel's uh, prophetic imagery to portray the final apocalyptic encounter between good and evil. At the end of his age, Gog and Magog symbolize the anti-Christian forces of the world. So once again, they, when they get to the get Revelation, they want to make it all symbolic, symbolic, symbolic. symbolic. I, I, I don't know. I understand why you would possibly want to do that, but not, not super helpful, all right? So, then let's do this. Gog is a person. Can we agree with that? Gog seems to be some type of what? Governmental leader? Official? Is that fair? Magog seems to be a land or a region which involves, obviously, people who live there. Is, that, is everybody okay with that? Fair? Okay, what else do we have here? We're, gonna, we're running out of time. Son of man, uh, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach. Everybody want to look up Meshach real quick? What do we have? Now, who's the chief prince of Meshach? Gog, right? Everybody agreement with that? Okay. Okay, and what just, if you want to just look really quick, is it a long entry or short? Okay, what do they say about Meshach? All right, two men, two tribes. Okay. Okay. Okay, right. All right, that's it. All right. And it doesn't say which one this is referencing in Ezekiel. Um, the of okay, all right. But it doesn't mention Ezekiel 38. All right. So we, 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 we don't know a lot there. Okay, how about two ball? How about two ball? How about two ball? We're going to run out of time here. Two ball. What do we have with two ball? Is that long or short? Okay. All right, so, but we don't get, we don't have a lot of, we don't have a lot, right? So if we say, so let's just, uh, how does the NIV translate uh, Ezekiel 38, uh, 2? Since you have it there. Just the whole thing. Okay, so well, can, we, can we at least do this? Gog is the prince or the, the official leader. Magog is the land. And that land obviously makes up a people and includes Meshach and Tubal, which would be tribes. Can, could we say tribes would make more? It's obviously not the original individuals, correct? It's not the original sons, right? They go, that goes all the way back to descendants of Noah, right? Or Noah's son. Okay, so, so what we can say is Gog is the person, right? Magog is the land, and he's the prince of Meshach and Tubal of these individuals or these tribes. Because that one dictionary called them tribes, did they not? All right, so I think we can go with that, all right? Does, does that help us any? Not really, right? But we can say this. What can we be dogmatic about in verse 2? Okay, well, nothing else is said about him, but we can be dogmatic about this. God wants a prophecy said against Gog. He's against, well, Gog. It primarily seems to be against Gog. Agreed, or do you feel like it, it's against all of the people associated? At least in that verse. Okay, so all of Gog's army, all the... 
Gog is the leader, so all of his, and you could say maybe the land or the people he's connected with. All right, verse three, and thus saith the Lord God, behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. So, hey, Gog, I'm against you, right? He's against Gog. He's against him. Are we given a reason why yet? Now, we're not given any specific reason, all right? Then verse four, I will turn thee back. Who's the thee? Gog, put hooks into thy jaws. I will bring thee forth and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, Libya with them is all them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all his bands, the house of Tagarma uh, of the north quarters and all his bands and many people with thee. All right, so it sounds like Gog's the leader and he seems to have done what? United himself with a bunch of, there's a confederacy of nations. So when the Bible dictionary refers to this being a confederacy of nations, I think we can agree, right? Right? Now, some of those nations we maybe have some way of identifying, correct? Right? We have Persia, Ethiopia, Libya, right? Um, Tagarma. Uh, do we have anything about Tagarma? Anybody want to do a quick search for Tagarma? The house of Tagarma. But look up Tagarma. We're going to have to stop here. Name of a man and a country. Does it tell anything about the country? Okay. North, north. Okay. Hey. Okay. Well, this is important because a number of these have been associated with the north. Okay, Armenia. Okay. What? Often thought of. Often thought of, but hey, but please know, the one thing I wanted you to pick up, a lot of these things reference things coming from the north, right? That's important because they tried to, the one dictionary tried to connect it to Jeremiah's mentioning of something coming from the north, but we think Jeremiah's talking about Babylon. And I don't think this, this clearly doesn't seem to fit Babylon, does it? No, Gog, none of this seems to fit. I don't think this is referencing Babylon being judged. I don't, I don't think so. Because, because if this is the way people read this, this is an army coming against Israel and then God's going to step in. He doesn't step in until 70 years has passed. <laughs> he doesn't stop this army from overcoming Judah, right? They overcome Judah, right? They, I mean, they don't really overcome them. They just take them and start sending them to, what, three deportations. They send them away. So that, that doesn't seem to fit. All right. Okay. Okay. People around Israel. Okay, very good. Okay, that's that's very good. North. And Magog, did we figure out like which direction? To the north. Remember, it's north, right? So, but if you take all the nations... Whoever these nations are, this seems to describe Israel being encircled. The Confederacy, right. The Confederacy forms a circle. Uh, if, if our understanding is correct. Now, if this is referencing something historical, where a Confederacy of nations come against Israel, well, then all we would need is someone to point us to a date, right? And we've had two dictionaries that they even attempt to give us a date. One tried to kind of point us to some dates, but they didn't really say when this happened. They just tried to point people to certain, like, this king or this king. And, and, and some of those were in 600-something B.C. Well, Israel, like, none of that would really make sense, right? Because when does, when does the kingdom divide? When's the division of the kingdom? And at 5-something B.C.? Or no, it's when Israel's taken into Babylonian captivity. It's five, 
500s, right? When, is, when does the nation divide, though? So, yeah, I would have to put that together. Uh, yeah, so that's probably before that. But I'm just saying, they tra- the dates they pick doesn't seem to fit anything historical that'd be like, oh, that's when a whole confederacy of nations came against Israel and God supernaturally stepped in and destroyed everyone. It doesn't seem to fit because you, they, they become a nation, right? They split relatively soon. Agreed? Is when they split. 597. Or, or, I'm sorry. What was it? 975. All right. So then they were pointing to dates in 600. Okay. And then they split as a nation in 500. So I guess they were, they were, a na- they were unified for much longer than I was thinking. They were unified for much longer than I was thinking. If they, no, if they split 900, they weren't. I'm sorry. I keep thinking five something when uh, Judah goes into captivity. So, yeah, so, um, wow. Yeah, so they, they didn't stay long, so they split. No, that's fine, that's fine. So if they split in the 900s, and then the, the, that one dictionary is trying to find kings in the 600s, well, then it couldn't be going against Israel. They could only be going against either the north or the south, right? So, like, I, that's a little con- confusing. So I, I oh, this, I, 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 I'm not completely sold but I, I, I do believe when you start looking at all these nations involved, I'm not, we should not attempt to try to, uh, uh, this is where I do disagree with people. I don't think we should be trying to grab a map and trying to say, oh, that's them, 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 that's Russia. That, that I don't think we can do, right? I think we can try to say some of these nations that are named, we do know pretty much where we think that they do belong. But I think we can agree that it sounds like the, the, their, Israel's going to be encircled. And they're going to come against Israel. And God is against. And who's going to be leading them? Gog. We can be dogmatic about that. And I can't think of a historical fulfillment of this. And I know this. We've looked at two dictionaries and none of them provide. Does anybody have a study Bible that provides any date when this supposedly was fulfilled? You can, we, we'll, I know we keep saying we're going to end, but does anyone have anything? have a note. Schofield immediately goes Russia, 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 Russia. But Yeah, if you, if you, if you have something. Uh, Schofield's just going to say it's Russia. He's going to go to the future. Yeah. Okay, end of the present age. Okay, so they look for futures. They, they look for future. And I, and, uh, does yours point to Russia future? Yeah. Are you, you must be using a Schofield. Okay, that sounds just like Schofield. Okay, all right. All right. I, I can just hear it. No, I'm like, I know that's Schofield. Okay, all right. So, so, so hang on. So this is what we have. Oh, they put it before the millennium? Oh, okay. But, we will state this, and we'll end. Two dictionaries, nobody gives us a date when this has occurred. They don't even attempt to. They gave us some dates, but they didn't really tell us, well, this was the bad. Nobody seems to know. In fact, the dictionaries seem to argue we don't even really know the identity. Well, if this was a real something that happened in history where all these nations surrounded Israel and then they were supernaturally wiped out, you think we would have some record of it. Like maybe in the Bible, right? Right. Okay. So now we do have a record of something happening in the future at the end of Revelation or at the end of the millennial kingdom or at the end of the thousand years, whatever words you want to use, right? So, and we do have a record of something else happening, Revelation 19, right? Everybody knows what happens in Revelation 19? Everybody in this church knows what happens in Revelation 19? The sky opens and Christ comes back on a horse and kills everyone. (laughs) Bloodshed, destruction, death, right? Okay, so we know something big happens there, right? So um, I don't don't have any good answers, but we're going to have to stop because it's 8.08. So we'll stop. Any questions? All right, we identified 
at least Gog as a person and all those other places represents maybe a region and people. And we know they seem to be uh, described in a way to circle Israel. And that's where we'll have to leave it. What happens, we'll have to figure out. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, as we try our best just to see what's in your word and not put anything there that's not there, forgive us when we fail. Help us continue to dedicate ourselves to being better observers of your word than trying to be interpreters. But to do this, sometimes we have to consider all the different interpretations and then ask ourselves what's actually there. Help us, Lord, just be more committed to this and forgive us for all the times we have failed. Because I know I have, and I'm assuming everyone listening, we've all failed to handle your word correctly. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...